News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, COVID-19, as we know, turned the entertainment world upside down, as it did to many things, canceling concerts, postponing award shows. But that doesn't mean there was a shortage of entertainment news this past year. Actors and musicians joining the fight for racial equality, a number of celebrity scandals, as we see every year, a few TV shows that really got people talking. And of course, some familiar faces were lost. Show contributor Nikki Reitmeier takes a look back now on some of 2020's top stories in pop culture and entertainment. On January 5th, the Golden Globe for Best Drama Picture went to 1917. A month later, Parasite would win four Oscars, including Best Picture, a historic accomplishment. Harry and Meghan announced that they'd be stepping back from the royal family in January. It was speculated that they might live in Canada. However, the pair ultimately moved to Los Angeles. On January 10th, Neil Peart, drummer and lyricist for the band Rush, died at the age of 67. The co-creator of the beloved Canadian teen series Degrassi, Christopher Kit Hood, also died this month. It's so hard. Then, on January 26th, to say goodbye. American basketball star Kobe Bryant was killed in a helicopter crash along with his 13-year-old daughter. They were among the nine people who died. That evening, Alicia Keys gave an emotional tribute to Kobe at the 62nd Annual Grammy Awards, held at the Staples Center, where crowds gathered outside. We're literally standing here, heartbroken, in the house that Kobe Bryant built. As an indication as to who the big musicians were this past year, young Billie Eilish was the big winner at that event, taking home five awards. I'm the bad guy. And at the end of the month, federal prosecutors in New York formally asked to talk to Prince Andrew as a part of their criminal investigation into his friend Jeffrey Epstein. Later in the year, Ghislaine Maxwell, Epstein's longtime partner, would also be arrested. I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! In February, legendary actor Kirk Douglas and newspaper columnist Christy Blanchford passed away. On February 24th, a Manhattan jury convicted movie mogul Harvey Weinstein of rape. He was sentenced to 23 years in prison. And Canadian fashion mogul Peter Nygaard announced he'd be stepping down as chairman of his company following an FBI raid on his New York headquarters on suspicion of sex trafficking. With COVID-19 spreading around the world, on March 11th, actor Tom Hanks and his wife, actress-singer Rita Wilson, were the first major Hollywood celebrities to announce that they had tested positive for the virus. I have been the celebrity canary in the coal mine for the coronavirus. Just before the show was supposed to begin, the Juno Awards were cancelled. It was but one of many arts events that were postponed or cancelled this year. Cirque du Soleil announced it was temporarily suspending its productions around the world. On top of that, Cineplex closed its theatres across Canada. This month, Prince Charles tested positive for COVID-19, but later recovered. Many musicians performed online concerts. Neil Diamond updated an old song to reflect the times. Don't touch me. 
On March 20th, the show that everybody would soon be talking about, Tiger King, was released on Netflix. It's not every day that a zookeeper went to prison for murder for hire. In March, notable deaths include Jack Welch, chairman and CEO of General Electric, James Lipton, host of Inside the Actors Studio, the founder of Shaw Communications, J.R. Shaw, and Kenny Rogers. When the deal is done. In April, some of the world's biggest musicians and celebrities came together for One World, together at home. A COVID-19 fundraising event spearheaded by Lady Gaga. Canadian celebrities held a similar televised event called Stronger Together, which featured Michael Bublé, Celine Dion, and Justin Bieber. We are going to get through this together. Love you guys. On May 8th, we heard that Ray Horn, part of the famous Las Vegas duo Siegfried and Roy, died due to complications related to COVID-19. The next day, Little Richard passed away. Actor Jerry Stiller also died this month. A new holiday was born, a festivus for the rest of us. Also this month, actor Fred Willard and Brian Howe, former lead singer of the band Bad Company, passed away. On May 11th, Princeton University named its first black valedictorian. The spot was earned by Montreal-raised Nicholas Johnson. On May 25th, George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis. Our lives matter. Black lives matter. Celebrities like Ariana Grande and Jamie Foxx joined the thousands of people who took to the streets in protest of police brutality and racial inequality. Being black in America should not be a death sentence. And on the last day of the month, the SpaceX Dragon capsule made history as the two astronauts on board, Bob and Doug, successfully docked at the International Space Station. You've completed a historic ride to the ISS and have opened up a new chapter in human space exploration. On behalf of the SpaceX and NASA partnership, congratulations on a phenomenal accomplishment and welcome to the International Space Station. In June, eTalk host Ben Mulroney said that he was stepping down to make room for, quote, diverse voices after a scandal involving his wife, Jessica Mulroney. On June 29th, the Juno Awards were held in a virtual ceremony. Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks, ladies and gentlemen. This month, Carl Reiner passed away. He was hailed as one of Hollywood's greatest writers, actors, and directors. June was also Pride Month, although celebrations were significantly different this year. New York City marked the 50th anniversary of the first Pride March in that city, which followed the Stonewall protests. So those are just some of the big stories in pop culture and entertainment that had Canadians talking through the first half of 2020. Continuing now, our show contributor Nikki Reitmeyer is taking a look back at some of 2020's top stories in pop culture and entertainment. Hey, Weejay, I got a question to ask you. Are you ready to better this world? This past summer, the Wee charity scandal involving the Prime Minister and the former Finance Minister would become one of the most talked about stories of the year. 
By the end, We Charity, which featured many big-name Canadian celebrities and musicians at its popular We Day events, would cease operations in Canada, and the Kielberger brothers would step down after losing many big-name sponsors. Notable deaths in the month of July include Nick Cordero, Charlie Daniels, Kelly Preston, civil rights activist and U.S. Congressman John Lewis, and legendary TV personality Regis Philbin. I'm Regis Philbin, all American, no preservatives, and I'm back, baby, I'm back! <laughs> On August 21st, Full House actor Lori Loughlin was sent to prison for two months for her role in the U.S. college admission scandal. Canadian star The Weeknd took home the top prize at the 2020 MTV Video Music Awards. In August, Outer space, my lad. Outer space. Veteran actor Wilford Brimley died. And at the end of the month, actor Chadwick Boseman tragically passed away at just 43 years old after a battle with cancer. On September 9th, two men filed a lawsuit against Kevin Spacey, accusing him of sexually assaulting them in the 1980s. On September 14th, Canadian author Margaret Atwood was honored with a Lifetime Achievement Award. Something surprising occurred at the Academy of Country Music Awards. In a time for worldly peace. Carrie Underwood and Thomas Rhett tied for Entertainer of the Year. At the Emmy Awards. And the Emmy goes to Schitt's Creek. Schitt's Creek won big. The beloved Canadian sitcom took home seven trophies. And in the month of September, U.S. President Donald Trump pushed for a ban on the extremely popular video sharing app TikTok. Trump and Joe Biden would engage in the first presidential debate. I'm not going to answer the question Why because, would you that because question? and it was a disaster. Radical left. Will you shut who is up, your, man. Listen, who is on your Then at the start of October, there have been plenty of historic events at the home of the U.S. president, but nothing like this. Inside the White House, President Donald Trump and his wife Melania spent the day in self-isolation. Both of them infected with the virus that has killed more than one million people around the world. Iconic fashion designer Kenzo Takata died of COVID-19 complications. On October 6th, the legendary Eddie Van Halen passed away. Oscar-winning actor Jeff Bridges announced that he had lymphoma on October 20th. Canadian LGBTQ2 author and video artist Richard Vaughn was found dead 10 days after he was reported missing. James Randi, the Toronto-born magician who once escaped from a straitjacket as he dangled over Niagara Falls, died at the age of 92. At the end of October, Bond. James Bond. Accomplished actor Sean Connery died at the age of 90. And Who's been, have your boots been under? At the CMT Music Awards. Canadian country star Shania Twain made an appearance from Switzerland, singing Whose Bed Have Your Boots Been Under? On November 3rd, Toronto rapper Drake earned his 21st number one hit on Billboard's R&B and Hip Hop chart. 
he broke the record formerly held by Aretha Franklin and Stevie Wonder. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but I guess you know now. Also in November, the latest season of the popular Netflix show The Crown was released, tackling the complicated relationship of Charles and Diana. I don't think of myself as royalty. And now, here is the host of Jeopardy, Alex Trebek. Thank you, Johnny Gilbert. On November 8th, longtime game show host Alex Trebek passed away. He was born in Sudbury, Ontario, and was best known for his role as the host of Jeopardy. Trebek died at the age of 80 after a nearly two-year battle with pancreatic cancer. If we take it just one day at a time, with a positive attitude, anything is possible. In December, fashion mogul Peter Nygaard was arrested in Winnipeg. The arrest followed a request from the U.S. Justice Department to begin extradition on charges related to sex trafficking. Four days ago, our first guest surprise released her second album of the lockdown. Please say hello to Taylor Swift. Hi, Taylor. Hi. Taylor Swift dropped another surprise album. We are creating thousands of jobs, you I don't ever want to see it again, ever. And Tom Cruise berated crew members on the London Mission Impossible set for violating COVID-19 social distancing rules. His angry rant was caught on tape and went viral. Don't do it, you're fired! So those are just a few of the big stories in pop culture and entertainment that had Canadians talking in the crazy year that was 2020. Thanks for listening. I'm Nikki Reitmeyer. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, I know a lot of people are playing, uh, paying close attention to the Artemis missions, uh, the next generation of lunar exploration. And my next guest is here to talk a little bit more about Canada's role. Gilles Leclerc is the Director General for Space Exploration at the Canadian Space Agency. Thanks so much for being with us. It's a pleasure, Simi. Uh, tell how us, uh, very good. How about you? Great, thank you. Uh, talk a little bit about how things are, are going to play out and, and the Artemis mission and uh, Canada's involvement in that. Well, we, uh, the minister, uh, Minister Baines last week announced that Canada uh, will have an astronaut, one of ours, uh, fly on one of two deep space missions. Uh, Artemis II is uh, the first time humans will go to the moon since, the, uh, since 1972. And in fact, the Artemis II mission is, uh, resembles the Apollo 8 mission, which took place exactly, exactly 52 years ago. Uh, that's the first time humans uh, left uh, low Earth orbit and traveled uh, to deep space. So Artemis II will be a historic flight in the sense, not only because a Canadian will be the first non-American person to travel to the moon, to travel to deep space, but that crew on Artemis II will travel uh, deeper into space than than any uh, even 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 since the Apollo era. So Artemis II is, is really important for for Canada. It's really uh, an exciting time for us. We we live in a golden age of of space exploration. The mission itself, uh, Artemis II, is planned for 2023. Uh, it'll be the uh, the second test flight for. NASA's new launcher, the Space Launch System, SLS, and the second flight also for Orion. So it's going to be a qualification flight. Uh, it's going to be a 10-day mission. 
the the crew is going to test uh, the whole launcher plus spacecraft uh, integrated system for two years in low Earth orbit. They're going to separate from the launcher at about an altitude of about 2,000 kilometers and then start a four-day travel to the moon. Uh, the moon is, is 400,000 kilometers from the Earth. And then they're going to do a flyby of the moon, uh, 8,000 kilometers. The, the Apollo missions never went higher than 150, 200 kilometers from the surface of the moon. So the astronauts, including our own Canadian astronauts, will have a a splendid view of the moon, earth, sun system. Then they're going to travel back on their journey uh, to Earth, again, a four-day mission, and splash down in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, so we're looking forward to this happening you know, two years from now. And when you when you talk about that, that kind of slingshot around the moon and then coming back, uh, different, obviously, from landing on the moon and setting foot on the moon, what do you learn or what will the, the people on this crew learn from, from going that distance on the far side of the moon? Well, the, the Artemis program is, is interesting. I mean, where we're, NASA is developing completely new technologies and Canada is helping, by the way, develop these technologies uh, the, the three first missions of Artemis will really be to test all these new systems. Artemis 1, the predecessor to Artemis 2, will be a completely automated mission. So it's test all the systems, uh, and uh, there won't be a crew on Artemis 1. It's going to be a one-month mission. So during all that time, you'll be able to qualify uh, the whole launch and crew system. Uh, Artemis 2 uh, will be the first uh, mission with a, with a crew of four, and uh, it will test at the time the, the piloting, the life support systems. Uh, there's going to be some science done, but the main objective of the mission is to test and qualify uh, Artemis 2, so that by Artemis 3, which is still planned by NASA sometime around 2024, uh, we'll be prepared uh, to have the first landing of uh, humans and as nasa said you know the first woman on the moon and the next american on the moon Uh, is canada then do we feel a bit left out that we're on the mission that goes around the moon but not uh, necessarily on the mission that will once again uh, travel and land on the moon well we we, were extremely excited to be part of the first crewed mission i mean we will we will have a chance in future years to have a canadian and many canadians uh, explore the lunar surface. Uh, the deal we have with NASA following negotiations is that we get two flights to deep space, uh, one flight around the moon, which is Artemis II, which is quite a coup for us, and then a flight to Gateway. Gateway is a small lunar station uh, for which Canada will provide uh, the next generation uh, Canada Arm. We call, we call it very originally Canada Arm Three. Uh, it's going to be uh, a next-generation uh, AI-enabled, completely automatic robotic system that's going to operate, maintain, uh, support uh, spacewalks, uh, put together infrastructure, deploy instruments on the surface of the gateway. And that, that's our big contribution to lunar exploration for the short term. Now, the, the goal of the whole Artemis program is, is more than simply demonstrating technologies and just bring back humans like we did 50 years ago. It's really to do a lot more science because the missions will be much longer. 
the the orbits, the landing systems that we'll have will allow us to do more science because the missions will be longer. And all of these things we do on the moon and around the moon on Gateway will prepare us, will enable you know, not only a sustainable presence in space, but also help us prepare for Mars and other destinations in the solar system. Well, it uh, is certainly a, an interesting uh, project, and I know so many Canadians are looking forward to this and will be following uh, along with this. So we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining us this morning. You're most welcome. Thank you. It was a pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we uh, talked briefly about this uh, earlier on the program. BC Hydro crews still working to restore power to thousands of British Columbians. In the height of the storm yesterday, 170,000 customers were impacted uh, with the power being knocked out. Uh, let's get an update from Susie Reeder, a BC Hydro spokesperson. Susie, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jill. So, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, we've restored power to about 130,000 of those 170,000 customers that were impacted by yesterday's storm, and that was on Vancouver Island, the Gulf Islands, uh, and the Lower Mainland. So the latest, um, as of 7, is uh, still about 37,000 customers without power. Um, That's about 24,500 in the Lower Mainland, in Maple Ridge, Mission, and Surrey, and about 15,000 on Vancouver Island, uh, the Gulf Islands, and this is primarily in Duncan, Victoria, and Salt Spring Island. So our crews are working around the clock and hoping to get um, everybody's power back up and running um, as soon as possible. Uh, This was the first major uh, wintry uh, system that uh, a lot of us experienced uh, this year. I know BC Hydro has its own uh, meteorologists uh, and its own weather team. Uh, Were you guys prepared for this? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we have our team of in-house meteorologists. They they track storms. Uh, also, we have our vegetation management crews. Um, they go out year-round and, and they trim um, trees that are sickly or that have the potential to cause outages because actually 50% of outages uh, in the province are caused by trees uh, and tree branches hitting our lines uh, during uh, storms such as these. Um, so we do uh, prep for that year-round. Of course, uh, we do have three times as many trees per kilometer of power line than uh, any other utility in North America. So, um, so that also is a challenge, of course, in storms like these, especially on places like Vancouver Island and the Gulf Islands, where, where there are many more trees than in, in urban areas like here in the Lower Mainland. And I, I was going to ask you, especially a place like the Gulf Islands, when we're also seeing ferries having delays and such, it's got to be more challenging dealing with outages there. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the, the ferry cancellations yesterday, uh, coupled with, of course, um, really tough road conditions, really, really heavy wet snow and ice uh, uh, did pose some challenges for crews. Um, so again, just want to thank our customers for their patience. If taking a little longer to, to get your power on. Um, um, that's why, but we are, we are committed to working. Our crews worked throughout the night um, to restore those 130,000 customers. So that's, that's 78% of customers uh, that we were able to restore overnight. And, and is it in, in situations like this, when we're dealing with that really thick, wet snow, and we were seeing pictures of it in, in various places, uh, that, that uh, not that light powder uh, type snow, does it make it more difficult in that it weighs the branches down or you have to physically go and remove that? It doesn't kind of fall to the ground itself? Yeah, absolutely. That really thick, wet snow um, definitely um, adds uh, to the challenge. It's, like you said, weighing down branches, um, 
it makes it easier for the branches to break and then come in contact with our electrical equipment. Um, also, if, if ice is on the branches. So uh, back in 2018, when we had that really, really bad storm, it was the worst storm in BC Hydro's history. Um, part of the problem there was ice and really heavy snow weighing down branches. There were about 750,000 people across the province during that storm uh, that were without power, and that, that actually lasted for for several days in some of the more rural areas. Um, so definitely uh, snow and ice, it, they, it causes issues. Yeah, I remember those days uh, well and talking to people uh, who were yeah. who were impacted by that. Uh, Susie, thanks so much uh, for joining us. I know a lot of people uh, wondering, uh, this being the first, what the season is going to, to look like and be like in the coming weeks. So thanks so much for being with us this morning. Thank you. That is Susie Reeder, a BC Hydro spokesperson. And again, uh, still about uh, 27,000, 24,000 uh, customers uh, without, sorry, about 40,000 customers uh, without power. Uh, but uh, the good news there, BC Hydro crews have managed to restore the bulk of customers' power that was knocked out during yesterday's storm. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the B.C. government has made some changes to the small and medium-sized business recovery grant, hopefully making it easier for businesses to qualify and get some increased supports, some of the hardest-hit businesses in this province. And joining me to talk more about what this means is Ravi Kalan, B.C.'s Minister of Jobs, Economic Recovery and Innovation. Thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, So what has actually changed and what businesses will this apply to? Well, uh, just to give some context to your listeners, uh, we uh, announced uh, $1.5 billion in September, uh, further measures to support small businesses uh, and medium-sized businesses throughout BC. And in the middle of October, we launched uh, this grant program, and uh, and we heard uh, three weeks into being minister, I met with uh, many stakeholder organizations, and they made some suggestions on how we can make this program more accessible. Uh, so some of those things that we've done are uh, we've opened it up to sole providers. Uh, you know, some so- uh, sole providers have fixed costs, but then they have contracted staff as opposed to full-time staff. Um, we've increased the top-up. So right now, small businesses can get Ten to thirty thousand dollars, depending on their revenue loss. But um, we're increasing it for tourism operators, so they can get up to the thirty thousand maximum, plus an additional fifteen thousand to support their businesses. And then, lastly, uh, there's a whole bunch of other uh, smaller changes. But another major one was around the paperwork required for the processing. We we've eliminated a whole bunch of things that they had to provide just to make the process more streamlined. Uh, the showing uh, how much revenue you've seen uh, drop from what I understand, then uh, somebody would now have to show they previously had to show a drop of fifty percent of revenue, uh, now thirty percent. Uh, but the change also has to uh, goes to how long you've had to be in operation so far. Uh, if you've only been operating for nine months, how do you prove that you've seen a thirty percent drop in revenue? Well, uh, so there's two things. Uh, one, um, yes, originally the program was designed to support businesses um, that were viable. And in order to show viability, you know, we wanted to see three years. But we heard from stakeholders that, that there was a lot of businesses that perhaps weren't getting captured in that. And so we moved it to 18 months. So, uh, for example, if someone would apply today, they would need to have shown that they were in uh, operation uh, in uh, in June, uh, and then show 
Uh, it can be a week-to-week revenue, so they can show revenue from uh, the first week or the last week of June to uh, uh, the second week of June this year, just to show the revenue that they've lost. And then the formula is used off that on how much money that they're eligible for. So it is based then on uh, your business, if it's a, a small business uh, where it's uh, perhaps something uh, that, that uh, you're, you're, it's not your key income, but it's a small business say, where you only make $10,000, but you can, if you show the, the decrease in revenue, you still would be eligible for some of the grant money? That's correct. Yes, if you uh, if you're if you've got a, a side operation, let's for example, and and you've got contract contractors that you bring on, uh, then you qualify under the new changes. Uh, how will this help? Do you think both the tourism industry and the restaurant industry? Well, the tourism industry has been hit particularly hard, as everyone knows, without uh, international travelers. My colleague, uh, Minister Melanie Mark, has been working really hard with the tourism sector to support them. They recently came back with uh, uh, recommendations uh, on how uh, we can further support the tourism industry. And I know she'll have more to say, I think, either today or tomorrow about that. But, you know, this is just one additional measure on a whole host of measures that we've been bringing in. Uh, since this pandemic started, you know, we've got 65 percent, uh, up to 65 percent rent subsidy. We've got 25 uh, percent tax credit for um, people either hiring or bringing back employees. And, you know, we changed the liquor wholesale pricing. So we've done a whole host of things. And this is just an additional piece to, to help our small and medium sized businesses. Uh, we are expecting to hear from uh, Mike Farnworth later today uh, and Adam Walker uh, for an announcement about the restaurant and hospitality business. Uh, is it your understanding then, is that different from this, uh, what we're talking about right now? Yes. Uh, well, uh, Mr. Farnworth will, will be, uh, you know, talking more about uh, the changes around uh, food delivery apps. And, you know, I just think it's unbelievable that, you know, some of these companies are charging uh, 30% markups to small businesses during such a difficult time. And so, uh, you know, I think Mr. Farnworth and, uh, and Parliamentary Secretary Adam Walker will have more to say. And I think it's positive news and it'll be very welcome news for the restaurant industry. Well, that was a previous promise. So are we going to see caps on the delivery app charges? Well, I don't want to scoop uh, the minister. Uh, I don't want to lose a friendship with him. So I'll let him announce it. But I'll just say that, uh, uh, you know, I think uh, that this is a very important step. I've been advocating for the commitment we made in the election. And so uh, I'll leave it to Minister Farnworth to give you more details. Uh, and uh, when it comes to uh, uh, the tourism industry, and I know you touched on this uh, as well, uh, that is one of the hardest hit areas and will continue uh, to be so. So uh, a tourism, uh, for somebody in that sector uh, getting up to $45,000, do you think that's enough that is going to save people that are that are at risk of closing down in that industry? Well, you know, again, it's really challenging. You know, we've uh, one of the other pieces that we've expanded in this program is to allow uh, those operators that are seasonal to be able to apply, which wasn't available before. And so, uh, you know, it'll vary for business to business on how much this, uh, this influx of money will help. But I know there was a whole host of measures that were recommended by the tourism industry uh, in the report that was released, uh, I think, two weeks ago. Uh, and, uh, and so this is one of the important measures in the short term. But of course, there's a longer term conversation that needs to happen. You know, like next year, uh, you know, we, we know the vaccine is coming and, and 
and everyone's kind of getting excited. But we also know that it's unlikely that we'll have a lot of international tourism next year. And so uh, there's a whole host of challenges that come with that. But uh, I'll leave it to Minister Mark to, to provide more information. All right, uh, Minister Kalon, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Take care. You too. That is Ravi Kalon, BC's Minister of Jobs. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, in addition to the power outages yesterday, the slippery roads, the ice bombs falling on the Portman Bridge, there were also some ferry cancellations. And while that's not unheard of for this time of year, uh, it does have many people wondering, what are we in store? What is in store for the next few days and weeks? And Deborah Marshall is with us now, BC Ferries Executive Director of Public Affairs. Deborah Marshall, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure, Jill. Good morning. Good morning. How bad was it yesterday? Well, you know, everyone saw the snow come in and whatnot, and uh, then it was the high winds uh, that followed in the afternoon and evening. It's not the snow that hampers ferry travel, it's those high winds. And uh, we did have cancellations. Uh, We had 29 cancellations altogether on four of our routes, and those were routes sailing between Metro Vancouver and Vancouver Island, as well as Tawasin and the Southern Gulf Islands. Uh, When we uh, heard about the power outages, especially at the Gulf Islands, does that have an impact when we're talking about the ferry terminals themselves as well? Uh, well, we did have some power outages in the southern Gulf Islands. Uh, our terminals, though, they do have backup generators. They also can operate from ship to shore power if they need to uh, to operate the ramp of the vessel, uh, or pardon me, the ramp on the shore uh, to interact with the vessel. So uh, we, do have, uh, we do have mitigation measures in place there. Uh, so are things back on track now as far as uh, the schedules and ferry operations? Uh, Yes, we are back to normal operations today. Thankfully, those high winds came through last night. And uh, we do have a bit of a backlog, pent-up demand of traffic, particularly on the Tawasin-Swartz Bay run. Uh, Yesterday, the last sailing that left Swartz Bay was at 3 p.m., and the last sailing that left Tawasin was 5 p.m. Now, of course, we are advising people to avoid non-essential travel, and that has certainly been reflected in our traffic numbers uh, over the past month. But I think we're just seeing a little bit of pent-up demand because of the sailing cancellations yesterday. And how are things going as far as mandatory mask wearing and following the rules and distancing with the pandemic? Well, the vast majority of our customers certainly understand the reason for the mandatory face covering policy. Uh, There have been a few incidents here and there, but uh, certainly by far our customers know that we are all in this together. Uh, They're practicing physical distancing. Um, If people are traveling on the upper car deck, they are permitted to stay in their vehicles. And of course, we've got uh, lots of cleaning and hand sanitization stations throughout the ships. And when you say there have been a few incidents here and there, what kind of incidents? Uh, Well, there was one on Saturday night at Horseshoe Bay where a customer refused to wear a mask and became belligerent about it. So we did contact West Van Police. They did attend and the customer was denied travel for the day. Uh, And is that the only case of that or is that something that's been happening? Uh, you know, as I say, there have been very few incidents. I know there was one back in October uh, where there were a group of people who refused to wear their mask on board, but uh, the vast majority of people certainly understand why the policy is in place. 
And looking ahead to the next few days, and normally this would be a very busy time for busy, uh, for BC ferries. Uh, there have been some questions about the addition of extra sailings while people are being advised not to travel unless it's essential. Uh, what are your thoughts on the fact that that there likely will still be busier ferries and there will be people traveling uh, leading up to and around Christmas? Yeah, we do know there's some people who will be traveling for essential reasons. Um, BC Ferries is not an enforcement agency, so, um, you know, we can't screen customers or anything. But the traffic numbers do reflect we're down about 50% in vehicle traffic on our major routes, uh, about 70% in passenger traffic. But the one thing to note is our commercial traffic is up about 10% right now, and that's reflective of the essential goods and supplies moving back and forth, uh, courier packages. And, and the like. So we are seeing an increase in, in that volume of supplies and it's important that we keep that moving. All right. And Deborah, just before I let you go, I know there's not much you can say about this, but can you talk at all about the fact that uh, BC Ferries does find itself on uh, the other end of a human rights complaint about female engineers not having a place to change? Yeah, well, you know, we're certainly aware that the complaint has been filed with the Human Rights Tribunal on the matter that we are working to resolve. Uh, we certainly take these matters seriously, and, and it is our hope that we can uh, re- uh, we can address the uh, the issue internally. But uh, given the fact it is a, uh, a personnel matter, I'm, I'm just afraid I can't comment any further. Sure. Do you have any timeline? It sounds like this has been going on for quite some time. Do you have any idea on when it might be resolved? I know that our HR department is actively working on it, but no, I don't have a timeline. All right. Uh, Deborah, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Have a great day. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, on December 15th, a heartbreaking post was added to the blog called In Their Name. It's titled The Wrongful Death of Natasha Forey. And it starts with these words. Tasha was everything to me. She was my only child. And throughout her life, I was mostly a single parent. We were very close and usually talked every day. I would be the first person she'd call to share exciting news and vice versa. We were inseparable. My beautiful daughter died suddenly at the age of 29. That was written by Anne who is the mother of Natasha Forey. Now, yesterday, I was able to speak with Anne Forey, along with her partner, Daryl Hermari, about what happened, what led up to the sudden death of 29-year-old Natasha. She first went to Lionsgate Hospital on October 2nd to have a cyst on her leg looked at. She was treated. She was sent home with painkillers and told that was the treatment and to go home and recover. She then called her mother a few days later in excruciating pain. It was Saturday morning. I went, you know, I was out grocery shopping and I was on the phone with Daryl and she called. She was just um, in complete agony and so much pain. And this is the hardest part, you know, because as a parent, you try to do everything for your child. And even though she was 29, you know, still her mother. And um, she called in so much pain. And um, I said, well, you have to go back to the hospital. And she goes, well, you know, I don't know. You know, I don't want so, so much pain. And, and I said, Tash, you have to just go back there. And that's what I would, you know, since she's passed, obviously I've fought with that because I'm like, should I have sent her to a different hospital? Would it have been better if she went somewhere else? And, um, and uh, you know, but obviously I would have told myself to go back to the same hospital. Like, you know, because, I, again, you trust the, the healthcare professionals. 
And um, and I knew I wasn't going to get to go back in and see her. It's just a weird landscape. They have this, you know, um, you can come in for two hours, one person at the emergency, but that actual sign at the emergency isn't actually, doesn't apply or didn't to the emergency. It was to the main entrance. So I don't know why it was even there, but I knew I wasn't going to get in to see her. So her friend uh, took her to Lionsgate and she spent many hours there again. Right, Daryl? Yep. And then, um, and, uh, you know, we just touched her stuff. And I, again, I had confidence. I thought, well, maybe this swollen lymph node, you know, painful was part of the deal. They gave her painkillers. And, and again, now looking back, it's like, well, if your lymph nodes are swollen, why are they swollen? Right. You know, what's going on? That you're, you know, and that was something that was never addressed. Now, Natasha went to Lionsgate several times. She continued having pain. At one point, it was thought she might have COVID. Also, because of COVID, the family couldn't be with her the entire time. Uh, before the last visit to the hospital, she called her mother again in tears. Oh, I just want to go lie down. And I know now, you know, in retrospect, that had she just laid down, she would have died in her bed. Okay. Hmm. The difference is she died in the hospital. Um, you know, I've, we've talked to the the, the specialist and yeah she would have died there in her bed and then it would have been a whole other thing um, but she did call the ambulance and um, took forever in my mind and but again I just thought I, I didn't think it was this I mean it sounds terrible but I didn't I'm glad I, didn't, I wasn't so alarmed because I was very calm with her and then we called her and um I mean, so she, she called us, I guess, when she got to the hospital. We were coming over from Vancouver to Lionsgate. And uh, she, um, you know, I was crying, a little bit upset. And she was like, don't cry, Mom. And that would turn out to be her last words to me. And uh, Anne Forey then talked about what happened next when her daughter was taken to the ICU. And... Um, and so I kind of stepped out of there and I didn't even say goodbye to her because, again, I thought they were just putting her upstairs and uh, I would see her soon. And so I just kind of got out of the way and and then all of a sudden I heard this rumblings about, you know, we're thinking of putting her up to ICU. <clears throat> and that's when everything changed for me because I was like, I know how serious ICU is. And, and so then it was just like they said, you know, just go, you know, Go wait. Go have tea or something. Go up for a couple of hours, and we'll call you once she's settled. And I was like, okay. And then we got the call from uh, one of the ICU doctors. He called us when we were going out to get coffee, and uh, and he, he talked to us on speakerphone, and he was basically saying that it checked all the boxes uh, for COVID. And uh, and so Anne and I kind of looked at each other. It just didn't it didn't sound right? It didn't feel right? So she. Uh, she said to the doctor, "What about the cyst that had uh, that she had on on the on the second? Yeah, I said, Does that, would that have anything to do with it?" And he said, "He said no. He said it. Uh, he didn't even know about it. He said it was, he wasn't aware of it, and he would he would take a look. And he said that definitely would change the direction of treatment that they were going in." The family has now uh, filed a complaint with the College of Physicians, but in doing so, found out uh, some huge gaps when it comes to wrongful death law in this province. Well, Anne asked me to take care of that. She asked me to make some phone calls. So I phoned probably four or five, six lawyers in the city just to, to try to find out what we could do. And, uh, and basically the first question they would ask is, does she have kids? And I would say no. Does she have a mortgage? And I'd say no. 
and then the whole conversation just changed. There's nothing that they could do. That uh, and it was same story, lawyer after lawyer. I, I, I it was the Family Compensation Act, the way it's structured yep. in BC. The only province, even the Yukon, has changed it and updated it. But BC is so far behind that there basically is no compensation. And even if you have children or mortgage, it's capped. I don't even know how much it is. It's it's it's, it's really insulting, right? So, mm-hmm. what was the? How did they describe that to you? The old law from the eighteen the mid eighteen hundreds is the is the English law that uh, we adopted as a country in Canada, and it's it's. The changes that have been made are, are insignificant uh, since then. So we're dealing with 150-year-old law, right? Yeah, and and so we connected with the wrongful death, uh, uh, the Reform Society. It's also, is there a deterrent? Are the stakes high enough for any kind of malpractice or negligence? You know, because basically we have the college. that They're going to either, you know, we haven't got the results or their findings yet, but they're going to either, you know, anything from maybe if there is negligence found, losing hospital privileges, perhaps too extreme, maybe losing a license. But it just doesn't seem like there's enough accountability. I mean, the, the long-term trauma that both I, myself and Daryl, you know, are going to endure through this, it's not acceptable for just the college to do an investigation. And it, it really is that adding insult to injury because... Families deserve better in BC, and the the hospital failed Natasha. That is my opinion, and um, I've lost on her future. I won't be ma- I won't see her be married. I won't see grandchildren from her. She's my only child, and you know I I was thinking, of course, as a parent. Well, you know, when I get old, I got someone to take care of me. Like she's my you know my blood. She's going to take care of me. And apparently some, uh, in some cultures that may be acceptable, you know, where it's traditional that the families take care of the elders or as they get older. But that's a bit of a human rights issue because, uh, you know, I had that hope as well. But, you know, that's not up for consideration with this situation and this law. Jill, what, what bothered me when I talked to these lawyers, it became clear to me that if it was better for the doctors in the hospital if she died than if she had lived and if she had been incapacitated in some way because, you know, that it's only through, you know, her being incapacitated, could there be any kind of a lawsuit? Could there be any kind of damages? Because she died, there there was there was nothing that could be done. Yeah, if she was disabled, that'd be hard worse for them because they'd have to pay out for a year. That is Anne Forey and Daryl Hamari talking about the death of 29-year-old Natasha. We are going to continue with this story tomorrow at this time. We are going to follow up with the president of the BC Wrongful Death Law Reform Society. Uh, they are also encouraging people to reach out to the Attorney General of BC and request reform when it comes to this law.